0: and 365 Day Returns.
2: Born into a family ruined by scandal, Agnes Pelton, a shy and retiring young woman, became part of New York's lively art scene in the early years of the 20th century. When fame seemed inevitable, Agnes retreated to the California desert Where she lived for the rest of her life creating scores of luminous and deeply spiritual abstract paintings agnes pelton's story has now been brought vividly to life in a new novel the pelton papers
1: i must have been 14 when i started telling everyone who would listen that i was going to be an artist I spent every possible moment of the day drawing pictures, often furtively when I should have been doing my lessons. Sometimes when rain kept us indoors and prevented our afternoon constitutional, my tutor, Miss Sunder, would bring out the watercolors and she and I would sit at the big table in the kitchen with a bowl of water between us and share the little pots of paint. At night when I went to bed, I carried my drawing pad and pencils up to my room with me. I was beginning to understand how the world changed when you rendered it for yourself. Out of the life-altering act of beginning to look deeply, I enjoyed a new kinship with everything around me. I felt I was journeying into the soul of each object I drew. I kept this wondrous new experience to myself. That is blasphemy, Agnes, I could hear my grandmother say. Things don't have souls. But I was alive with the knowledge that everything possessed a unique essence and therefore its own self and was, even if imperceptibly, different from everything else.
2: I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I'm talking to Mari Coates, author of the Pelton Papers, which took her 20 years to write, bringing to life one of the great yet little-known artists of the last century. This is Historical Fiction. Mari, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Rob, for having me. I'm really excited about this.
2: Tell us about this extraordinary and unknown artist, Agnes Pelton.
1: Well, she's the most famous unknown artist. (laughs) People have been discovering her now for many years, and each one thinks that they're the only one who know about her. And in fact, she had a very long career, born in 1881 and died in 1961. She was an early modernist painter, one of the very early ones. And she pursued in her life two modes of painting, one of them realistic to make a living, and the other were these abstract paintings They were spiritual vehicles for her. They were her vocational practice, really. But I grew up with the realistic paintings. Um, She painted portraits of my grandparents and their family, and she painted very beautiful landscapes and things like that. And that was that, kind of. And then in 1996, I saw a review of a new exhibit, a retrospective, on this unknown painter Agnes Pelton which (laughs) made my jaw drop because no one had ever heard of her but us and it turned out that she painted abstracts which I had had no idea of at all so it was nearby and we could hop over the bay and see the exhibit which was life-changing for me because to go from this really lovely traditional classic portrait to a room full of the most amazing colours and designs was just stunning. She had a very interesting life.
2: What was it about her life that appealed to you?
1: Well, I always felt a kinship with her. But when I found out her life, the first exhibit was done by a curator called Michael Zakian, and he wrote the catalog for that show. And he's done a spectacular job, about 100 pages of a biographical sketch. And when I read that, I was just amazed because her life covered so many landmark events in the history of modernism in this country, in America. And I was just fascinated with that. And she was in the very famous Armory Show of 1913. She began painting abstractly earlier than that, really. She studied with Arthur Wesley Dow, the famous teacher who really changed the course of teaching art in America. She had shows, she was always on the verge of becoming famous and then something would happen like World War I or World War II or the Great Depression, the stock market crash of 1929 here and she would be shuttled back into obscurity because no one was interested in spiritual work during those times, oddly I find. And it's only been fairly recently that people have found these pictures and found them to be not only applicable to our lives today, but of interest and of great value. So, you know, I just kept finding out things and it was exciting.
2: (laughs) You mentioned Arthur Wesley Dow. He was one of those American artists who really began to incorporate ideas from the Orient into their art I suppose, trying to capture a spirit in nature. How important was he to Agnes in developing her spiritual style of painting?
1: Oh, he was absolutely foundational. She was one of his favourite students. He hired her to teach at his Ipswich School of Art, which she hated. She was such a retiring and shy person, and nobody would listen to her. These women that were, I don't know doing this as a hobby, she would tell them, she looked like she was 14, she was 21, but she looked very, very young. And no one would listen to her, and they only wanted to be around him as a teacher, and she just thought, the heck with this, I don't want to do it. But he was foundational and really established her, and he did the same thing, I believe, for Georgia O'Keeffe, who studied with him ten years later.
2: I was going to mention Georgia O'Keeffe... Why do you think Agnes Pelton remained relatively unknown and obscure while Georgia O'Keeffe became such a huge name in world art, really?
1: Uh, Well, I think there are several reasons for it. First of all, O'Keeffe had Alfred Stieglitz behind her. He was the first art photographer, really, to make any kind of a name or reputation, And he opened the 291 Gallery in downtown New York and became the arbiter of modern art and taste and things like that. And he first showed O'Keeffe. And he also fell in love with her and she with him. And he photographed her nude and showed those pictures and all of that, which made O'Keeffe almost notorious before her time. But she also had a great gift and was pursuing it in a single-minded way and was able to do that because she had Stieglitz's backing and her pictures sold right away. So she had sales behind her, she had Stieglitz behind her, and she had a temperament that enjoyed all the notoriety. Agnes did not at all. And Agnes was painting... She was striving to find her way to abstraction while O'Keeffe was working and selling. So Agnes was not really ready to sell those pictures yet. She hadn't really painted them yet. She didn't paint her first real abstract until 1926. So O'Keeffe was able to kind of go on that way. And Agnes was not. And Agnes painted realistically to make a living. So it looked to observers that she really only did one thing. You chose
2: to tell Agnes's story in the form of first-person fiction. What led you to treating her story by mixing biography with historical fiction? Was it something to do with her being not so forthcoming about her life in her own letters and papers?
1: Yes, it was. There's so much, we don't know this, we don't know that. We don't know if she met Georgia O'Keeffe. We don't know if she had relationships at all, because she never wrote anything down about them. She used her sketchbooks as journals, and really what they were there for was recording things she was reading and, and ideas she had for pictures more than deeply revelatory diaries. So there really wasn't anything, because I thought about biography, and, and I knew then that it had to be fiction because I was much more interested in what lay under the facts of her life than just the facts of her life. And so that's what that decision was. And then it came, you know, when I was kind of musing about how to write about it, Anything I'd read about her, people were trying to make her big and famous somehow, and they'd write about Agnes Pelton did this and that. And it just seemed so false to me. And as I was thinking about it, I got a voice coming into my mind saying, you know, I want to make big pictures and get a big pad of paper and draw things. You know, and it was just kind of one of those moments, and I just wrote it down and followed it and it became her voice very quickly and that's what i stayed with because it had so much energy for me as a writer
2: one thing we do know about is that she had two paintings in the famous armory show which was one of these seminal moments in the history of modern art where americans were exposed for the first time to the works of post-impressionists and cubists You've captured that rather nicely in the book. Perhaps, could you share with us a passage from the book where Agnes and her mother arrive at the Armory show to see her paintings there? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year
0: in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: The hall had been strung with streamers from the center of the ceiling to the outer walls, a device that lent intimacy to the hollow armory. Small hexagonal exhibition rooms created with burlap, wood, and bamboo, were festooned with garlands of spruce and cedar, and small fir trees stood like sentinels all around the hall. We began our tour with the Americans. After all, this was the Association of American Painters and Sculptors. Where are your paintings? Mama asked sotto Voce. I don't know. I whispered back, but my heart was pounding in anticipation of coming across them in this great hall. It was clear to me that the assembled exhibition was of monumental importance, a feeling that was confirmed when we came to the ground-shifting work of the Europeans. To provide the viewing audience with the source of this modernism, the organizers began with Impressionists and Post-Impressionists including Van Gogh, Cezanne, Gauguin and Duchamp. We came to the Fauvists, named for their wild beast freedom with color, and entered Matisse's room, where Mamma fell silent when she saw my expression of delight. "'You, you like this?' she said a bit timidly. I rooted myself to the floor and breathed in slowly. Yes, yes, one could plunge directly into these colors and never wish to leave.
2: Did it ever concern you while you were writing that you might be putting thoughts into Agnes's head that may not have ever been there? And do you feel that there's a responsibility that writers have when they're fictionalizing a person who really lived?
1: Oh my goodness, yes. Every day, because you're living in your writing most of the time. And in a sense, I would check with her about it. There was a point in time where I was at a writer's retreat near Chicago, and I had a month there. This was fairly early on, and I decided, well, this is fiction. This is a novel. So I should just go ahead and write whatever I want because this is a character in a novel and I should make a really commercial love scene. I should make her fall in love with somebody and have a very exciting love scene and I tried writing this. Now I had four weeks at this place so you don't want to waste time and I started writing it. And it just it wasn't working, and I kept at it, and I kept at it for an entire week. At the end of that week, I just gave up. I just thought, this isn't working. I don't think I can do this. I picked up one of my books, I think it was even Zakian's book, and just started leafing through the time period that I was trying to write about. And I just had to laugh at myself. She is so much smarter than you. And she is so much more interesting the way she really was instead of your great idea. So at that point, I just completely stopped trying to put thoughts in her head i tried instead to reflect what i thought might be going through her head and i checked with her at every place and honestly i do feel proud of this book because i do feel that i got the heart of it right i certainly don't know what happened with her but i think it's right And I have several readers who have told me they felt that was right too. So that's a reassuring thing. It
2: took you 20 years to write. So how did you maintain your interest over that whole period?
1: Well, I tried to quit. (laughs) I thought, I can't do this. The first thing I did was I thought, I can't do this. It's too much. So maybe I'll get a story out of it, a short story. So I tried writing kind of little sketch pieces about her at various times in her life, and those really felt exciting and had heat and light and life and all that. So that was a story, but nobody was interested in that story either. And so I kind of set it aside. The wonderful thing about writing is that if you have a good day, you have something on paper that you can return to. And that was very helpful. And then I was part of a wonderful writing group, and I began to try to do more with the book. I had a moment back in 2007 where I was away for another week of retreat and came across some of the earlier written materials and just felt, this is worth keeping, this is worth saving, and this is worth committing to. And so I committed to it at that point, and my writing group just got me through it, essentially, because I had so little confidence in what I was doing, and I would just write something and send it off and think, oh, that's the worst thing anybody ever wrote. And they would come back with enthusiasm and helpful comments, so I just plowed ahead that way. And if anybody is trying to write something... Get yourself a group, because that really does make all the difference.
2: Did you find along the way that looking actually at Agnes Pelton's paintings gave you some insight of what was going on for her and in her life?
1: I do. I think those pictures that she painted, thinking of the one in particular that's called Mother of Silence, which she painted, it's almost an icon to her own mother. And she would meditate with that painting and ask it questions. And, well, she called it the mother, you know, and it was her mother, but it wasn't her mother. It was the painting, and that's an important distinction. She had a spiritual relationship with those paintings, and she suffered from depression and ill health, and she would often go to the mother and ask, should I continue with this fruitless work of trying to paint abstracts and the answer was always yes and I felt I was in good company because I was having so much trouble with writing about her and she was having trouble painting so we were friends.
2: (laughs) What was your process when you were writing? Did you have a time frame mapped out of her life which you followed chronologically or did you find yourself darting from time to time seeing where she was at in various stages of her life?
1: Well, I did kind of both. First of all, I commuted to my job on a train, a light rail train, and it took about 20 minutes. And I would use that time, I like to write longhand to start, and I would just sit on the train and decide, what about Agnes, shall I write today?, And I would just kind of follow that because the longhand gave me great freedom. It wasn't printed on paper. It didn't lock me into anything. And that was actually the way I really did that for years. And that helped enormously. And I did follow her life. And I had an understanding of her life. And because I am the kind of person who has to tell the whole story... I had to go through her whole life and write the whole thing. The number of pages that remained discarded (laughs) because I had to write it all out. And then I was able to see what the thread was, what the desire was, what therefore the action was. Each person has to find their own way. It's hard.
2: When you've had such a long relationship with a subject, with a character, a true character from history, and you've spent 20 years of your life writing your novel about her. Do you think now that there are other historical figures or people from her life that have captured your interest that you feel might be the basis of another novel or novels?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, yes, I'm very interested in her mother. Florence Pelton was the person who alerted her father to things going on between their preacher and her mother. She went to Europe to study music, and while she was there, met Agnes' father and married him in London. Oh, it was at St. Pancras. And I looked up a picture of St. Pancras, and there's this wonderful picture of a tree that is surrounded by headstones. It was something that Thomas Hardy did when he was an architect before he became a writer. And that tree is so fascinating. And I looked at it and I thought, why did she marry this man who was clearly the wrong, not a good husband to her at all? And I thought, oh, to get rid of her name, her name, Tilton, was notorious so that interested me and that's what interests me now
2: so you're working on another novel
1: not yet (laughs) i need 20 years to cook that one
2: (laughs) well best of luck and Mary coates thank you very much for joining us
1: thank you
0: historical fiction